Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us in all that we look at and that you or your spirit will anoint and, and teach. We ask you to be with us and anybody that may be on their way in your son's precious name. Amen. Judges chapter 6. We're going to be starting at verse 21. And... We're kind of starting in the middle of the story, so let me give us a little bit of context before we get here. Remember that the children of Israel have rebelled against God. They've been put under captivity of the Midianites, and the Midianites keep raiding them and destroying, you know, stealing their food and destroying what's left. Uh, we get the introduction into Gideon, and the greeting of the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Hail, you mighty man of valor, as he's hiding there threshing the wheat. He starts commenting, you know, hey, if, you, you know, if you're really God, where have you been? Because all of our uh, fathers keep telling us about all the great things you've done and you're nowhere to be seen. He's not recognizing the fact that um, they're getting what they deserve. They've been disobedient. Much like most people, and if we talk to people on how many times you go, well, if God was real, why would he let? And they'll give you some horror story as to, you know, what's going on. And that's basically what Gideon's saying. You know, hey, you're the one that supposedly crossed, you know, led us across the Red Sea. You're the one that sent the, the plagues on Egypt. You know, and my, our fathers tell us about all these stories, but where, where have you been in recent days? And finally, he remember, he, he recognizes it's the angel of the Lord. He goes and he creates a meal for them. He goes and kills a, a goat and gets it... Uh, gets it cooked up and cooks up the 11, the 11 cakes and brings the broth and all of this stuff and the angel puts it on the rock and the rock catches fire. And that's where we left off last week. So at verse 21, yeah, it's actually we want 22. We left off at 21. And when Gideon perceived that he, was, that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I... For because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto you, fear not, and you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Ophrah of the Abinazarites. One of the funniest things I find when I read through the, through the scriptures and people meet an angel of God is almost always they come up with this idea of, I'm going to die. The angel has just told them they're going to do something special for God, and almost every time they're going, oh, I'm going to die, I saw an angel. <laughs> and I, it just strikes me as funny. You know, here you get a message from God, and, you're, and your answer is, okay, I'm, you know, I've been told to go do something, and I'm going to die. It just doesn't compute with me. But when you think about most of these people who are talked to, they're pretty heavy sinners in most cases. Gideon is not a brave man. He's not been a righteous man. He has not been a real strong follower of God, as evidenced by him complaining, God, where have you been? Our fathers talk about you in this great strength, and his, basically he's going, oh, no, I've met an angel. I'm going to die. And we see this over and over in scriptures. And I just, I just find it as a funny thing. Um, because we're told that if you see God's face, you're going to die. And everybody equates that with an angel. I've seen an angel, I'm going to die. And it's just, a, just one of those things over and over. And it just strikes me as funny when I read it. Uh, you know, God's giving you a message, oh no, I'm going to, this is it, I'm going to expire today because I was given a job to do by God. 
They forget that I was given a job by God part and just remember uh, I've been in the presence of an angel or in the presence of God and forget the fact that they've been assigned a job. And it's almost like Gideon's going, okay, God's got something for me to do, but I'm going to die and he wasted his time telling me. You know, but you know, sometimes we do that same kind of thing. You know, oh my goodness, God's asked me to do such a big job, I'm going to die trying to do it, or whatever it might be. But you know, I just, th- I just think it's funny. I, I wanted to bring it out because I think it's, I just find it as a kind of a hilarious point. You know, God gives them a job and they go, oh, I'm going to die, and the angel says, "Peace to you. Fear not. You shall not die." <laughs> Because this is always the first words of the angels when they come to the people because this immediate thought is they're going to die and they go, fear not, peace. I'm coming to you with a message. I'm not, I'm not here to kill you. And his response is, and Gideon built an altar unto the Lord there and called it Je- Jehovah Shalom, which means God of peace. Jehovah God, Shalom is peace. And remember, we've talked about this. Shalom is not just... Um, peace from from problems it is all the all that peace involves the, every benefit that peace has and the goodness that that peace has and it means so much more than just be at be at ease or be it be be away from your enemies it is that whole idea of being at peace with god and and the joy and the comfort that comes along with god and this is what gideon's calling it he's all of a sudden had his encounter with god and you know i think about this there are so many people who claim to be Christians and around us that have never had any kind of encounter with God, or none that they talk about anyway. And I've shared with you, when I got saved at 10 years old, I had an encounter with God. He changed my life. And I've met so many other people in my life that God has changed their life because of the encounter they've had with him, and that's the way it should be. Because Paul tells us that we become a new creation in Christ when we come into, into his relationship. And otherwise, it's just a bunch of head knowledge. And head knowledge is not going to change your life. You know, if you ever talk to somebody who has a great bunch of degrees after their name on some topic, a lot of times, all it is is knowledge. They don't know how to apply that knowledge to their life. And there are many people that, are, that know the Bible that way. And they, they know the Bible really well, but it's not real. It doesn't come out and isn't applicable to life. And God has a word for us in all parts of our life. And this is why I say so many times, God wants to be our God 24-7, 365 days a year. He doesn't just want to be our God on Sunday morning. And I know I've met lots of people that God is their God on Sunday morning. He's not really a God then either. Because they're coming to church with, well, entertain me. Make, make me feel good, make, you know, make me feel really good about being here. And they're not there to serve God. They're not there to bow their knee to God. They're just there, and they're the ones griping about the music not being the right. The pastor went too short. The pastor went too long. The music was too loud. The music was too quiet. The music was off key. The mu- music was too perfect. You know, I've heard that com- comment from people, that the music was too perfect. They practiced it too much. It's not, it's not spirit-led. Uh, uh, pastor was too long-winded, he was too short-winded, he was too loud, he was too quiet, you know. And there's too many people that are coming to church to be entertained and not serve God. We need that song, the excuses, the excuses. If you know the song, I can tell. Yeah. But you know, this is the thing that all of a sudden Gideon has, has an experience with God. 
And his life is going to change from this point on. He's going to become the valiant man that he was told, hail you valiant man of, you know, val you, you man, you, you man of valor. And he's going to become that man over time. <laughs> he doesn't become it overnight. And, you know, n neither do we. And this is what I keep sharing with people. We cannot expect, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can't expect other people to be at the same level that you are. If you're a young Christian, you can't expect to be the, the, a mature Christian at that time. It takes time to learn how to think with God, how to act with God. And it takes discipleship. It takes somebody showing you how to do it in many cases. Jesus walked with the disciples for four years, teaching them how to minister to people and how to behave the way God wants them to behave. Uh, I got to walk with my dad for 8 to 12 years learning how to follow God. My kids had that same experience. You know, they got to spend their life learning what does dad do when this happens? What does dad do when this happens? The disciples had that. What does Jesus do when these Pharisees come and attack him? What does Jesus do when he sees somebody that needs healed? What does Jesus do when there's this group that needs to be taught, and he was their prime teacher for four years. And this is what we need to do. We need to find people and say, I want you to be, I want to learn from you. Learn how to behave. How does a Christian react when they're pulled over by the police, you know, for, for going too fast or too slow or, or too erratic or whatever reason the police pull you over? Uh, the world usually reacts with all kinds of cursing and complaining and griping. How does a Christian respond should be with respect and, and honor because God said to honor them. But here we have this, this picture of Gideon's experience with God. He's going to have a relationship with God from this point on where God's talking to him and he's listening. Not perfectly, but listening. <laughs> Verse 25. And it came to pass that same night the Lord said unto him, Take your father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the grove about that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord your God upon the top of this rock in the, or, in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove that you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said of, unto him, and so it was because he feared his father's household that, and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. All right, so here's this really brave man of valor that God calls him. God gives him a job and he says, okay, I'll do it at night. <laughs> real, real brave, but you know, I don't want to make too much fun of it because we would do the same thing, especially when God first asks us to do something. We'll usually do it the easiest way, the, the, the chicken way, you know, draw as little attention as possible. But I want to just look, you know, in verse 25, and it came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto him, take your father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old. I just find this interesting, that God gives him exactly which one to take. And do you realize that God, if we will listen to him, will be very specific in our life to tell us what to do, what not to do? Uh, but you know, so many times our problem is we think we begin to hear God's word and we run off to go finish his word without praying, without thinking, without talking to God. Uh, Pastor, on the way up, up here, we were listening to, was talking about the battle of Ai. The, the Joshua, the people came to Joshua, gave him a plan to take Ai. 
Joshua never went into prayer, never asked God's opinion about it, never, never did anything and said, okay, go, go, go do your plan. And you know, the one thing I've learned over the years is whatever I plan is never going to be God's plan. It just doesn't work. My, fl my plan will always highlight the wrong things, do the wrong things, and I need to sit back and say, God, what do you want to do? And we need to keep this in mind. God, what is it you want? Abraham was told by, the, by, by God, go and offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, in our day, that would never work because we'd look at the Bible and say, God says no, no human sacrifices, but this was before all of that was written down. And God told him to go offer Isaac, and he went up to offer Isaac. Now, why is that such a big deal? Isaac was the promised child. Okay, remember, he had Ishmael before Isaac, and God says, no, Ishmael is not going to be the, the, the child that I'm going to use. He's not the child of promise. Wrong, wrong woman, wrong, wrong way of doing it. You did it your way and not my way. Isaac comes along and he says, this is the child that I'm going to fulfill the covenant through. Next thing you know, Abraham's being told, go offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That had to have been a confusing statement for, for Abraham. First off, he knows he doesn't want human sacrifices, and it's the promised child. <laughs> you know, God, are, are, you know, it's one of those times where, God, have you gone insane? Have you forgotten what you're doing? Did I hear the right, did I hear the right words? But he knew God's voice well enough to say, okay, God. And in Hebrews, we're told he believed God well enough that if he had sacrificed Isaac, that God would resurrect him and give him back to him. He understood the power of God. And he had to have, because it made, would have made no sense otherwise. And here we see Gideon being given a very specific statement. Take that second oxen, the number two oxen, not the number one oxen, but the number two ox that's seven years old, which is a pretty old ox, and use that ox to tear down your father's altar to Baal. Again, remember we talked last week that Gideon is not from a righteous family. His family has been worshiping Baal. He is probably worshiping Baal himself at this point because he's kind of questioning, you know, God, you know, are you the God? And you know, he doesn't appear to be a worshiper of God up until the point where he meets the angel. Because right? that's when he all of a sudden changes and says, oh, <laughs> I got to offer the sacrifice. I, I'm in the presence of an angel. And God says, destroy your, your father's altar and the grove around it. Okay? So what does this mean about the grove? Who remembers what the groves represent? Idol worship. Place for idol worship. Well, it's idol worship to the fertility goddesses. Okay, so his father, not only worshiping Baal, but he, because they're using the word grove here, we're seeing that he has two gods that he's worshiping. Huh? It might have been Baalim, probably. The female, the female fertility god of the, that, those people. Or it could have been Astoroth, or it could have been any number of the fertility gods in the, in the grove. So we see here that he has got a really wonderful pedigree. <laughs> he can say, yeah, God, you're using me because of how righteous my dad is. <laughs> and of course, I'm being very facetious here. He's not, you know, he does not have a great pedigree. His dad is worshiping idols. And most likely Gideon is. It doesn't say that he did, but we're going to see him fall later on in, at the end of his life as, as well. 
So he's probably struggling with idol, idol worship and the whole nation's worshiping idols because that's why they went into captivity. All right, they went into the captivity because they left God. And then he says, and, and, and take and build an altar to your God upon the top of this rock. Which rock? Probably the rock that he just burned the, burned the food on. It was probably, it, this now tells us that that rock is, is not just a small rock. This is a, you know, this is a big rock. It's size that you can make, a, you know, probably like a, like a table size because he put the food on it to begin with and the fire came up and he's telling him to build a altar on that and you don't use a rounded rock to build an altar on top of because it would be very tough to build it. It has to be some form of flat rock whether it's a flat spot where they sat down for a picnic or it's a raised flat rock uh, for a, as a table. Either way it, it works. And so he says and then when you build this altar, take that second ox that you used to destroy the, the altar, your father's altar, and burn it as a sacrifice, as a burnt sacrifice. So there was two oxen. He used one and left the other. Am I right? Well, he says take the second ox, the one of the seven years old, and then he's going to, to tear that, ox, that idol down and then sacrifice that so the ox. So still alive. The first one he left alone. He didn't yeah. bother the first one. Didn't bother the first one. It never talks about the first ox. It just tells us there's a second ox. All right. And then it says, and use the wood from the grove for the fire. And he's probably using the stones from the old altar to build the altar. Okay. It's kind of amazing. And this is a great picture of how God will take the rubble of our life and rebuild it for us to his glory. And we see this over and over in people's testimonies where people go, and I had this many problems in my life, and look at what God has done as he turns your life around. God redeems our life when we walk away, when we're, when we're sinners, when we get saved late. God redeems our life. And he takes the pieces and he puts them back together because only he can repair the pieces. It would be like trying to go out to a great big wood pile that the that somebody's used a sledgehammer on and try to build a building out of it, God says, I'm going to take these pieces and instantly he repairs them. And he takes our life and he repairs our life. He doesn't take the broken pieces and make a broken down building. He repairs the pieces and makes a beautiful testimony for him out of our life. And this is the wonderful thing. And our, and our testimony can be, I grew up with Jesus and, and didn't really have problems, or it could be, I had a miserable, terrible life and I'm suffering from all the problems that I had with my lifetime, but God has redeemed it and made something special out of my life. Either testimony is just as good. And you know, I've, I've shared with, you know, with different people, you know, having grown up in the church and not gotten into alcohol and drugs and, and sex and all these things, sometimes, I, especially when I was young, I used to think, well, what kind of testimony do I have? And I actually said that one time to somebody who gave their you know, great testimony about how God had delivered them from drugs and, and, and alcohol. And, and that person told me, never belittle your testimony because any one of us would trade our, what you think of as a great testimony for yours any day because of the consequences that came with our sin. And I needed to hear that at that time. And I think more people need to hear that because... You hear all these people and they all have their glowing, how God redeemed them and turned them around. 
but they never really talk about all the consequences and pain a lot of times that they had to go through because of that testimony. And we're seeing here Gideon is walking away from what he's, what he's known. And God told him to go destroy his father's altar. Now you've got to think about this. This is going to be a big deal. All right? And it's actually kind of contradictory in one sense because God says, honor your father and mother. And this just goes to show us that when they're in disobedience, that honor does not go into following them into disobedience. And he says, go destroy your father's idol. And this is going to be a big deal. He's not a child anymore following his, and his parent is following the wrong lifestyle, the wrong God. Would that make a difference? You're never too old to, to honor your parents. And this is hard sometimes for people. If your parents are worthy of honor, and even if they're not worthy of honor, you're to give them honor. You're not to honor the bad things they do necessarily, but you are to give them honor. And it goes back to the idea, and I've mentioned this, the military have a saying that you are to give respect to the uniform even if you don't like the man in the uniform. It's the, the rank and the, and the position that you're giving the respect to, not the individual necessarily. And oftentimes we'll be called to give respect to our parent, whether they deserve, you know, in their lifestyle, we give them respect. That does not mean we enter into their sin and do and, and participate in their sin or even say their sin is good. It's the same thing with our government. We're to honor our government, pay our taxes, but that does not mean we're going to agree with everything that the government does. And this is the whole thing about authority and honoring. There's a time when you don't give that respect because it's in the wrong thing. Uh, the disciples, when they were told not to speak in Jesus' name, said we've got to obey God rather than men. Right. Now, of course, I've also told you that when the government per, uh, uh, punished them for disobeying them, they also said, okay, well, it's your right to punish us. We're going to take this punishment because we disobeyed, but we, you know, we obeyed God. We obeyed a higher authority, but you do have the right to punish us if that's your, your desire, and they took it willingly. And I love their statement. They came back with, thank God I was worthy of suffering for Christ. And that's not the attitude we have in our day and age usually when we suffer for, for God. We'll grump and gripe, well, God, how could you allow this to happen to us? The biblical worldview is, thank you, God, I was worthy of suffering for you. Thank you, God, that you decided that it was something I could go through. And this is what we're talking about on Saturdays, a biblical worldview. How do we look at things? When we go through hard trials, do we go, God, you're so miserable, you forgot, you forgot about me for, for a period of time, and look what happened when you forgot? Or do we go, God, all things work together for good, you've got a plan, and God, thank you that I'm worthy of suffering for you. Which attitude do we take? Too often the wrong one. Too often, for all of us, we take the wrong one. Sometimes we're victorious and do the right, take the right, right road. And God is so, I can see the smile on God's face when we take the right road and say, God, thank you that I'm worthy of suffering, that you've got a plan. And you can see his smile. So it says, Gideon took 10 of his servants. He didn't even, probably not his dad's, he took his own personal servants. Uh, with him, and because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, he, he would not do it by day, and he did it by night. By night. Okay, he's doing it in secret. And we're going to see that Gideon does a lot of things in secret <laughs> as we go through his story. 
All right, verse 28. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down and the grove was cut down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who has done this? And when they inquired and asked, they, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. Then the many, men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has cast down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto, the, unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Baal? Will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him put let him be put to death while it is yet morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because one has cast down his altar. Therefore on that day called him Jerubabal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. Now this is kind of an interesting place by the father. Okay? You know, the father is defending his son and almost criticizing Baal. Okay, it's very, you know, it came very close to crit totally criticizing him, and probably did. Okay, the men come out from the city, and they're ready to worship. Probably bringing their, their whatever it is they need to worship, Baal, you know, something they're going to offer on the sacrifice, and they find a mess. The altar is destroyed, the trees are cut down, and there's another altar a little further down, and I don't know how they knew the second ox was missing, or it, you know, how the men of the city knew the second ox was missing, but... You know, they knew that, that that it had been offered. Maybe it was still smoldering on the on the uh, on the altar, um, because remember the flesh doesn't burn completely when it burns. It just it has a bad smell and it leaves yeah. it leaves a lot. Especially this kind, especially this kind of altar. It's not like he put it into a crematorium furnace and and blew it you know and and hit it with a thousand degrees of temperature. It was just straight fire. And wood, it would have damaged, you know, destroyed it. Maybe br br brought the bones up, but there's a carcass laying on, on this altar, a lot of ash and and, and bones. And why they knew it was the second ox, I don't know. <laughs> and but they went in, and then they started asking, who who has destroyed our altar? And they found out that it was Gideon. Okay. Gideon did it in the middle of the night, trying to, trying to be sneaky about it, trying to hide it, but they found out. Now, how they found out, I don't know. Was there a guard somewhere that didn't raise the, a warning? Did they talk to one of his servants who, who weren't as uh, righteously prepared to stand up against Baal you know, as Gideon was? It's more likely. You know, they talked to one of his his own men who was like, I don't know why he you know destroyed the altar. I, I wanted to I wanted to worship here today myself, you know, and my, my master told us to come out and destroy it. You know, who knows how, how that all happened, you know, but you can picture how you can picture how that came about. The men in the city said to Joash, that's Gideon's father, bring out your son that he may die, because he has cast down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the grove that was was by it. So they go to Joash and said, get your son out here. <laughs> you know, get your son out here. He's desecrated the altar. He's desecrated the grove. And, you know, jo Joash's answer is kind of strange in one sense because if anybody had desecrated the temple or the tabernacle, the response would have been the same thing. They're going to die. Mm -hmm. Okay, so his, his response is kind of interesting. I think he's just defending his son at this point. 
He's probably a little disappointed with his son as well. But he is also defending his son. Isn't there a chance that he was not aware enough to, I don't know what's going on here, I don't want to go down, but I'm going to find out before let's talk about killing anybody, especially my son. Could be. I'm not going to say it isn't. He's, close, he's from a generation closer than Gideon, a few generations away from the real miracles of God. And, but it could be possible that he's just aware enough of God, just enough, just enough righteousness in him to say, well, let's see if this God is who is God. And that's a possibility. Uh, our, my temple, my, my, my altar, my everything, my God has been desecrated. What is my God going to do about it if he's really a God? Later on, we're going to see in, in Samuel, we see that the Philistines take the, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And the next morning they come in and Dagon's flat on his face. And so they put Dagon back up and nail, nail him with, with ropes and everything back up. And the next morning he's on his face and he's all broken into pieces. Purpose of the story is basically the same thing that Joash is saying. If, hey, if he's really a god, he should be able to defend himself. And it's the same thing I say, God is our defense. If we let him defend us, he is more than able to defend us. And that's what I've seen many times in my lifetime. God is more than able to defend us. He is ready to defend us if we will stay out of his way. And basically that's what Joash is saying about Baal. If Baal is a real God, let's see him defend himself. You know, if he's God, then he'll take my son and he'll do what he wants with him. And as he says, you know, Will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? Will you save your God? I love that. Will you save him? Will you save your God? He's supposed to be strong enough for him to save you. And now you're going to have to go save him. And there's almost, there's, if it was said by anybody other than the man who owned the altar in the first place, you could picture a prophet saying this. You know, are you going to save your God? You know, does he need that much help that he needs you to save him? Uh, you picture this being said by a prophet. This is like Elijah on Mount Carmel making fun of the prophets of Baal. <laughs> Yell a little louder. Maybe he's asleep. You know, maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe he went on vacation. He doesn't even, he's not even around anymore. I kind of get this picture from Joash. You know, that maybe, as Annie said, he had just a little bit of the desire for the, for the real God. He remembers the stories. Might just be also trying to save his son and saying, well, if this is really a God, he'll take care of him. Maybe he understood that it was a false God. I don't know how, how the, what his thinking process was, but he's defending his son with some very interesting words. It would be the words of a prophet. It's almost like God speaking from, through him, and that's quite possible. Even though he's not one of his children at this point, it could very well be that God is speaking from him. Does Baal need a, need a, need a savior? He can't, he can't help himself. He can't, he can't revenge himself. And this goes back into when Isaiah says, you know, they go out and they cut a piece of tree down and half of it they make a fire, half of it they make an altar, and then they pray to that, pray to that wood. That's basically what Joash is saying, uh, is saying here. You know, if this is really true, then this God should be able to defeat him defend himself and you know and it says and see because one has cast down his altar he if he should be able to help himself this man has desecrated him and what he's saying is my son has destroyed this altar and his his worship place if it's really a god he is going to wreak vengeance upon 
upon my son. And almost like he doesn't even believe that Baal was a god. Uh, Yeah, it kind of sounds like that. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbabel, and that's another name you're going to read for Gideon. So when you're reading through the scriptures and you read Jerubbabel, that is another name for Gideon. All right? And it literally means, as it says down thereafter, let Baal plead against him because he has thrown down his temple. So it basically means let Baal plead, plead against. And that's what his other name means. So he's being known as the one who has destroyed Baal's, <laughs> Baal's tem- uh, altar. Good, good thing to be known for. Uh, but you know, I think about this story here. How often do we do the same thing? We try to hide what we're doing for God. We try to crouch what we're doing for God. We don't, we're oftentimes we're not real brave about taking our stands for God. Uh, we, you know, and I've seen it, you know, people won't carry their Bible with them. They'll carry, you know, they'll carry a Bible. It'll be a pocket New Testament or something in their back pocket. So nobody knows they're carrying God's word. They'll, they'll go to church the long way or different ways every day so that people don't know where they're going. I mean, I've seen all kinds of really strange things. When it comes down to a discussion about God, they very sheepishly might say something about God or are they bold to bring God into the situation? Are they willing to take the abuse of, of bringing God into the situation? And unfortunately, many people are not. And this is where Gideon is starting. Starting out very timid. I'm going to tear down this, temp- this, t- uh, this altar in the middle of the night, and hopefully nobody's going to see me, and yet it comes out. I think you can pour it down in the middle of the night because if you try to do it during the day, it stopped That could be true, too. God told him to, so he would have been successful even if it had been during the day. Uh, but he probably did think it's going to be a whole lot easier. There's nobody to see it. Uh, nobody's going to know that I did it. Uh, and, you know, so much is done hidden. And even in our churches today, it's really sad how many churches are hiding the gospel of Christ. Many churches won't talk about the blood of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, uh, the fact that we're supposed to live for God in, in, in all that we do. And they try to walk some tightrope between worshiping God and, and not worshiping him. And some of them just blatantly don't worship God, you know, the God of the Bible at all and still name themselves Christians. And then it makes it difficult for those of us who want to preach God's word and God's truth. And people go, well, why are you taking such a stance with this Bible thing that, you know, this church down the street doesn't? Or this big TV church uh, uh, doesn't? And, or this whole denomination doesn't? And it's like, well, they're going to stand or fall before God. I can only go with what he says in his word and take a stance on it. And I feel sorry for these guys that claim to be pastors that may or may not be Christian, but when they stand before God, they're going to be accountable for what they did in their churches. And if they don't lift Jesus up and the Bible up in their church, God's going to discipline them for that action, plus all the lives they harmed by not lifting Jesus up. And how many people come to the church to hear the gospel message, especially on a Resurrection Sunday they come to the church and they hear this feel-good message that doesn't talk about Jesus or the resurrection or his sacrifice or sin, and they leave the same way they came in without even having heard the gospel message. And God's going to say, hey, pastor, you're, you're accountable. You're accountable for those lives. 
Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abizar was gathered after him, and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, who also gathered after him, and he sent messengers unto Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. All right. We see, for some reason, the enemies are gathered together. Now, I don't know why. Maybe this is the gathering together of their normal uh, harvest raid that they were doing. It doesn't explain why they're gathered together. It just says the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other people of the east, that's east of the Jordan, are gathered together. And Gideon blows the trumpet of war. And the people gather together with him. And it, it says, first off, they're starting with Manasseh, and then Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and all of these should sound familiar to you because these are the tribes, some of the tribes of Israel. And they all came up to meet Gideon. Now, I don't know if they really know what's going on. They just know that he's calling a war party. And they're a little tired of all the destruction and the, and the abuse that they've been getting. And, you know, there is that point where the flesh gets tired of being abused, no matter how kind or humble or meek somebody is. And they said, okay, enough is enough. And they just need a spark to get a blaze going. And it says, Gideon blows that trumpet. And it, it's that spark to ignite the event that's coming up. And so we see four different tribes coming and gathering with Gideon. And that's going to be quite a few people that can, that can be gathered on this. Verse 36. And Gideon said unto the Lord, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on, in the floor, and if there be dew on the fleece only, and it be dry on the earth uh, beside it, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand. And it was so, for he rose up early in the mor morning and thrust the fleece together and wringed the dew out of the, of the fleece, a full bowl. Now, I find this interesting in the timing of this. The Spirit of God comes on him. He blows the trumpet and gathers an army. Then, all of a sudden, he has some second thoughts. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting because, you know, we often do that ourselves. We start getting out with God and we say, okay, God, what do you want me to do this? And we start charging out to do it. And then we get, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? God, did I really hear your voice? Am I really supposed to be doing this? And Gideon decides to do what we call laying out a fleece. And it's not the best way to make a decision. Don't, you know, okay. God was very merciful to Gideon to do this, okay. Gideon had already been told what to do. All right. We always want to say this. I mean, God was very you know, gracious to Gideon. He's already been told what to do. He's already acted on what to do. And then he says, okay, God, I'm going to put this lamb's wool out. And in the morning, if it's wet and the ground is dry, then I'm going to know that this is what you want me to do. And he wakes up in the morning. The ground is dry. He grabs the fleece and wrings it out, hoping that there's things in it and gets a whole bowl full of water out of the, out of the, out of the fleece. 
that's a lot of water. <laughs> it doesn't say how big the bowl is, but you know, there's a lot of water when everything else is dry. All right. Um, verse 39, and Gideon said unto the Lord, <laughs> let not your anger be, against, be hot against me, and I will speak, but this once let me prove, I pray you, but this once with the fleece, let it now be dry only on the fleece, and upon the ground let it be filled with dew. And God did so that night, and for, for it was dry on the fleece, and the water was, the dew was on the ground. Okay? Gideon is aware of what he's doing at this point. Okay? He keeps hoping that this isn't going to work. God, I'm just hoping that you didn't speak to me, and I'm just hoping that that everything is going to be wrong. And, you know, his answer was, God, don't, be, don't, don't get really mad at me for this. <laughs> okay? He knows that God's going to be upset. He's gonna, he knows God is going to be upset with his lack of faith. And his prayer is, God, don't get too angry with me. Don't strike me dead because of my lack of faith. And he does it one more time. And, you, and we, you guys correctly identify, he's hoping that somehow... The ground's going to be wet, and this fleece is going to be in the shade or, or in the sun just right when he finally gets out, and, there, and it's going to be dry. Yeah. And God honored his lack of faith or you know, whatever reason it was, God allowed the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. And you can almost picture Gideon going out that next morning, grabbing that fleece and wringing it and wringing it and wringing it and just hoping for at least a drop of water to fall off of it. And God said, no, it's dry. It is dry. But you know, it is also a great picture of how we react to God when we are slow to react and how patient and loving God is with us. Okay, and this is the picture, and, and, and that's why I'm saying Gideon knew what he was supposed to do. He's already blown the trumpet. He's already got the army together, uh, and he's going to take two nights in a row, you know, two nights to go test and say, is this really what I'm supposed to do? And I don't want to make too much fun of him, and we make a little bit of fun with him, but, you know, he's doing what most of us would do. God, did I really hear your voice? God, is this really what you want me doing? And so often we will do this. And we might not go quite as, as far as Gideon did to do fleeces, but I've, I've met people who have done fleeces. Not necessarily this kind of fleece, but, you know, God, if you do such and such, then I will know that it's you telling me to do this. And most of the people who I've heard of telling, laying fleeces will give God a second or third fleece because they're still hoping just like Gideon, well, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe it was a fluke, and God, you're, you're not in this. It's not doubting God. It's doubting myself. If, 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 if I were in Gideon's position, I just called all the armies of four of my, the nations of my brethren, together for war. What if I misunderstood God? It was not it's me. I think that a lot do sometimes, like, whatever. Wasn't needed. <laughs> right, and everybody doesn't have that Joshua Taylor mentality. God said, "Go, let's go." And now, give it a second thought. And this man's given the three or four. I'll figure out if he's given it to me. If I do it, and that's it. So, uh, and that is the. I'm not doubting me. I'm doubting me. me. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's turn this around on it because you guys have all said the same thing. You're doing. You're saying the human thing is to say. 
I didn't hear from God correctly. I'm walk, he was walking in the flesh and not by faith, and he wanted to walk by sight, not by faith. But what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is, Gideon was wanting to walk by, by sight because he's asking God prove, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm not that I'm not making a mistake. What happened with Barak when he decided to not listen to Deborah? Deborah says, Barak, go out to war. You're you're going to, you're going to kill Sisera. I'm not going out unless you go with me. Okay. Fine, I'm going to go with you, but you no longer will get the victory that you were supposed to have. It's going to belong to, an, to, a, to another woman. There's going to be certain aspects of this. What would have been Gideon's benefits and blessings if he had actually gone out in faith and said, okay, God, you said to do this. I'm going to go do it, rather than having it being proved. We will never know for sure. Yeah. He he's gets some blessings. He gets some honor. He's going to make some mistakes at the end as well. Maybe he wouldn't have made those mistakes if he had just gone to God and said, God, I'm going to trust you and went out to battle on, on his faith rather than on the proof. Because we need to be very careful. We need to step out. And this doesn't mean go presumptuous. I mean, this, that's the other side of this. Okay, We can be presumptuous in what we do and we don't want to... But you, in this case, he knows he's heard God. He would not have blown this trumpet. He's not that brave to blow the trumpet to call, call the people to a war council if he wasn't absolutely sure that he had heard from God. Yeah, he had already seen the angel of God. He already was told to do this. He already knows the voice of God. He knows it well enough to have sounded the trumpet. This is when the flesh starts kicking in and saying, what, are you totally nuts? You're going to go to war against all these people that have had us in subjection? Feelings and emotions get in the way. Instead of having trust in what God said to him, clearly said to him enough for him to act on, he lives on his emotions, which are part of the flesh, saying, you're a nut, you're crazy, you, you didn't really hear God. And he takes his emotions and his feelings, puts them in front of the truth of God, and says, I'm now afraid. And we all do this. Okay? Emotions, emotions will be our destructive element in our life. I am afraid. I am scared. I, uh, I don't feel like this person, you know, that God loves me, so therefore I doubt that he loves me. I don't feel that God's telling, you know, being true to his word, and we fall into our feelings. And this is when we talked about this Saturday. It's very important for us to understand we stand in the truth of God. When God says something, and we know that he has said something, we do it. Now, if we don't know that he's saying and we have some doubt, maybe a fleece would be good at that. But the timing here, when you look at this, he calls the army together, then all of a sudden, he starts this doubt stuff that, you know, God, prove yourself. That is showing us that his feelings and his emotions have gotten in his way of what he knows. Now, if it had been turned the other way around, okay, God, I want to really be sure that you've said, you know, and he lays these fleeces down, and then he calls the trumpets, I would say, okay, he wasn't absolutely sure that he heard God's voice, and he wanted the proof that he heard God's voice. Okay? And if it's in that order, something like this would be okay. He's, the order that it's in it's shows that he's fearing. He's living in his emotions, not 
and not wanting to obey what he has heard as truth. And we all know we do that. Well, I you don't know. think I'll did I hear it correctly that sometimes I don't pay attention. And, and that would be okay, you know, as long as you haven't started acting. If you start acting on it and then all of a sudden say, did I hear okay, then we're, in the, we're back in this problem of, okay, I heard, I started walking with God, and now I'm, now I'm doubting. Because our, our emotions will stop us from doing all kinds of things that God has asked us to do. Okay? And I want to be careful because emotions are part of our human flesh. The only problem is our emotions almost always lie to us. But, did, but doesn't Satan play with our emotions too? Of course he does. So that's why I get but that's the problem with trying to put our life on emotions. We've got Satan who manipulates our emotions. Our flesh, our emotional, is, is made up of emotions. And Satan really tweaks and plays them. And then all of a sudden, we stop doing what God says. Why? Because we let our emotions get in the way. I get angry with somebody that God has told me to love, and I stop loving them and start attacking them. I'm not nice to people because people have hurt my feelings. You know, and oftentimes, our emotions are kicked in. People get divorced because they don't feel like they love their, you know, their, their spouse. You know, I just don't feel their love. They don't love me anymore. And usually, it's they don't love me. And because they don't love me, I don't love them. And our feelings get us to break our vows that we make before God. You know, I get ready to say, you know, this is a good one. Make a commitment, I'm going to go to church on Sunday. And we wake up Sunday morning and we just feel miserable. We feel sick, you know, we've, and we've had an argument with our, with our spouse and our kids and our, you know, our mother or father or whoever. We've had big argument, you know, and I just feel miserable and we go, well, I'll go next week. Because I just don't feel like going to church. Satan is really good about making us not feel about good about giving, going to church. You decide, God, I'm going to start tithing. And the next thing you know, you get a bill in the mail on Saturday morning for exactly the amount that you were going to tithe. What do I do? Do I let my emotions of fear rule me and stop me from tithing? Or do I go ahead and trust God and tithe? You know, these are the things that we face. These are the practical things we face when fear rules our life and anger, whatever emotion you want to, want to use. Many times I've seen it over the years where somebody has fallen in love with somebody who's not a Christian. I just got to get married to them. And I can really, I can get them to become a Christian over time. And I've seen it happen the other way, other way around. But, you know, fall in love. I'm in so much love. And I know, God, you say, don't, don't do this. But, God, I just know that because we're so much in love, I can violate your truth. And you're going to make everything work out. You're going to change it all just for me. And God says, don't do it. And you do it. And you walk away from God. Some 99% of the time that people walk away from God rather than changing the person who's not godly when they get that way. And they could have avoided it all by saying, God, <laughs> I want to put my emotions behind your truth. So just be careful about how you, how you look at this. Gideon's emotions are getting involved here. He's called the army, then he all of a sudden gets into this fear and questioning, and, he, and then he does two of them, hoping that one of them is not going to work. 
And you know, I can almost picture God saying, okay, enough is enough. <laughs> you know, don't even think about doing it a third time, Gideon. We want to be very careful, but you know, and I also don't want to make too much fun of Gideon because like I say, we are all like Gideon so often. We, we allow our emotions to stop us from serving God, our fear from serving God. We're in the middle of a conversation with, with a bunch of people and most of them aren't, aren't, aren't Christians and it starts getting into some place where morality is at, at, at stake and we just stay silent and don't bring up anything. You know, whatever that morality is, you know, sleeping together, you know, abortion, drinking, you know, getting drunk, planning, you know, whatever it is and we don't say anything because we don't want to offend them. Older what? Because I've gotten to where I would rather offend you than face you on Judgment Day with you than have kept my mouth shut. I would say mature, Christian maturity more than anything else. You know, because there is that point where we start saying, God, I want to serve you no matter what. Now, even at that, God will take it to the next step and say, what is your next no matter what? Okay, God, I can speak with you in front of a crowd, no problem. Okay, it's now against the law to speak for God in the middle of that crowd. And you're going to go to prison or you're going to be beheaded. I'm not going to be brave enough to say that I'm going to automatically stand for God, but I do believe that God would give me the grace to stand for him in that particular case, as he's done with so many others. But I know how hard that can be. And I'm not facing the gun. I'm not facing the, the sword. Several years ago, the testimony from it, when those Coptic Christians were executed on the beach, and they just praised God while they were being executed. That is something that is just a special blessing. Not that they died. You know, I, don't, I think it's really awful that they died, but the testimony of it. Our God is worth dying for. And this impacted people across the, across the world, that these people were willing to die for their God and willingly died for it and praising God while they died for it. And that's a rarity. We've got people who will die for their, for their beliefs, but they don't usually come in praising and excited about what's coming their way. You know, for the Coptic Christians, they realized heaven's awaiting us. We're going to be in heaven in just a couple minutes. All right, we're going to close in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you've shared with us and guided with us. Help us to live for you no matter what, Lord. Give us the the umption and the gumption to be able to go forward with you and to follow you in all that happens. Give us strength. Give us the filling of your spirit to stand for you in all things and develop this so that when it does become more serious, we will stand for you. Help us to see you in all that you do. Give us a real experience and a relationship with you in your son's name. Amen.